As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ali. I am speaking with Dr. Ohad Shimmer. Dr. Shimmer is an astrophysicist and associate professor at the University of North Texas. His research is in some very interesting and exciting areas like black hole mass and accretion rate. Dr. Shimmer's contributions to science have included several significant and interesting discoveries. He was part of the team that helped discover the oldest black holes in the universe and is tracking information from observations of more than 400 distant quasars. Welcome, Dr. Shimmer. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Susan. Great to have you here, and I'm very excited to hear about your explanations. You are into some wonderfully exciting things. You're an expert in two different fields that are extremely fascinating, astronomy and physics. Can you tell us what the difference is between an astrophysicist and an astronomer? Well, today there's not much of a difference between the two. Originally, astronomers used to do measurements of moving objects in the sky or even stationary objects. They recorded the observations, analyzed them, pretty much empiricists. Whereas astrophysicists emerged mostly at the end of the 19th century and deep into the 20th century, this resulted in a better understanding of the physics of astronomical objects. Nowadays, those two fields are pretty much well-mingled and well-mixed, and I would say that these terms are interchangeable. And in fact, the, the new distinction between the subfields in this overall research area is between three different categories. So astronomers and or astrophysicists could belong to one of three types. Category one would be the observers, which is something that I do. They could be theorists, where they're mostly concerned with the uh, physics of the astrophysical or astronomical objects. Or they could belong to a third category, and this is the category of folks who built the instruments that help the astronomers or the observers carry out these observations. And again, an observer could do a lot of theory at times. Theorists can reduce and analyze observations, and instrumentalists can also perform observations and do some theory. I'm a pretty much mostly an observer. I can imagine that with the advances in technology going as quickly as it is these days, that ability to observe must just be increasing 
by leaps and bounds. Is that correct? That is correct. And also, if I may, I can make a distinction between astronomy and again, or astrophysics, which is one and the same pretty much, and and other fields of, of the physical sciences. So we all know that from the physical sciences, at least, and also maybe the biological sciences, you have theorists, of course, and you have experimentalists. That is, you walk into what we call a lab, right? And you have instruments and, and measurement tools, and you conduct experiments. Well, astronomers differ from that. They cannot run experiments. They don't have a lab, or if you want, their lab is the universe itself. They simply have to sit tight and wait for something to happen in the universe in order to observe it and not run an experiment on it. We do not control our experiments. We simply observe what's out there. And the universe is always full of surprises. So this is another distinction which I think makes astronomy or astrophysics a lot more interesting than than other sciences. So would the people that are in the theoretical part of that science be the ones that explain the observations, the things that you record as observations? Yes, they either explain the observations after the fact, after they were taken and analyzed. They help us interpret the observations, but they also make predictions, which is another very important aspect of science because science relies on predictions. Science relies on thinkers, on people who can imagine things in an abstract fashion. And then the astronomer or the observer that goes out to the telescope and one day discovers something that was unpredictable. Well, sometimes they go back and ask their colleagues, their theorists, or they consult with results from previous papers and they realize that what they've been observing was actually predicted maybe even a long time ago. So theorists really are are amazing people. They can either predict things that never happened or they can help us explain things that happened and tell us what they think they are. What inspired you to become an astrophysicist? Oh, this is an interesting and, and very simple question to answer. Well, not just me, but my entire generation, we were fascinated and inspired by the space race, the, in particular, the, the moon landings, the Apollo mission, and that picture, iconic picture of Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins with their NASA spacesuits holding their helmets and with the picture of the moon in the background. This is really what inspired me and, and my colleague go into this, into science, engineering, technology, space, and it essentially pushed me way beyond the moon to try and understand the universe as a whole. I know that you do a great deal of work in the area of black holes, and I was wondering if you could give us a layman's explanation of what a black hole is. Sure, yeah. So black holes could be explained from various directions, and believe it or not, One of those explanations essentially stemmed even back in the 18th century by, again, by theorists, by theoretical physicists. So instead of trying to explain what is a black hole, I would ask the question, what's so fascinating about a black hole? Why am I interested in black holes? Well, when you think of the most powerful energy source, the biggest powerhouse you can see and feel in your daily life, what would it be? It would be the sun, I'm guessing, right? It's pretty much always there. shines very brightly. Usually we can feel the heat, sometimes too much of it. And when we think about the sun as something that is very powerful, and indeed we started realizing what the energy production mechanism of the sun is going back to the 1940s. That's when we started to understand what is actually going on in the sun. We realized that the sun is a very powerful object that is also very efficient. In fact, the sun can convert about 0.7% of the mass into energy, which may not sound very efficient, but it's the most efficient thing that we were familiar with 
until we discovered black holes. And so when we think of a black hole, we would like to think of something like the sun, if we kept its mass constant without changing it by much, but just squishing the sun, reducing it to a very small size, let's say the size of a small town, maybe four miles from side to side, right? And so taking the sun now, which is about a million miles from side to side and squishing it to the size of a town, now if we start dropping objects toward the sun, which now turned into a black hole because nothing can escape it, not even light itself can escape the vast amount of gravity that this object now generates, mass or any other object that would fall towards the sun would emit so much energy that the energy production efficiency will now be 10 times greater than we see in the sun today. That is, if you turn the sun into a black hole, the mass to energy conversion ratio would increase by at least a factor of 10, if not more. That is fascinating to me. And these black holes apparently exist everywhere. Uh, we now see them since the early 1970s. It is not just theory. Again, the theory dates back to the 1700s, and in the years around World War I, uh, there was another interpretation and another discussion of what black holes might be. But, well, since the 1970s, they're real. We see them. Pretty much they're everywhere. Uh, we're surrounded by black holes. And that's why I think they're fascinating and, and worth studying. So you said by the 1700s? Is that what you said? The first theory of this? Yes, believe it or not, as soon as Isaac Newton pretty much brought forward his theory of classical mechanics and he realized what gravity was, he and others have quickly realized that if you take an object with a given mass and you reduce its size while maintaining its mass, eventually something called the escape uh, speed, or some call it the escape velocity, but in fact it is an escape speed, it doesn't uh, rely on any directionality. The speed that you need to escape that object would increase and go far beyond anything imaginable. In fact, you could increase it to infinity. And even though Isaac Newton himself did not know what the speed of light was, these measurements came a bit later after his death. By doing some very basic math that any high school student can do, you can figure out what is the size of that object with a given mass should be in order for the escape speed from that object to exceed the speed of light. So just to give another example, if we want to escape the Earth, and again, we managed to do that in the 1950s, we need a speed of about 11.2 kilometers per second on the launch pad if we ever want to uh, send an object away from Earth's gravitational pull. If we want to escape the solar system, we will need a speed of about 600 kilometers per second and so on. Well, if you want to basically point a flashlight upwards and turn it on and try for the light beam to eventually go back towards you and fold down towards the ground, you will need an object that has an escape speed of about 300,000 kilometers per second. Well, you could achieve that if you squish the Earth without changing its mass to the size of a typical olive. Or again, if you wanted to do this for the sun, you'd have to squish the sun to the size of a small town. Again, about four miles side to side. So these concepts, these ideas were there in the minds of people, in the minds of great physicists, even almost 300 years ago. But they could have dreamed about actually locating objects that would obey those rules. When were they first discovered by observation? How long ago was that? 
So this was about 50 years ago, again, during the Apollo era, but somewhat unrelated. It came to be only after we developed some very sophisticated detectors that could detect x-rays. And when we pointed those x-ray detectors to objects in the sky that we know are emitting x-rays, what we now call x-ray binaries, these are binary stars or two stars or they used to be twin stars that were born at the same time, but slightly different masses. And one of the twins evolved uh, too fast or in a, a strange way to become a compact object, either a black hole or something similar to a black hole, which we call a neutron star, also a compact object. And the companion star simply pushes down material towards that compact object and that material lights up and of course it ignites and shines with a very high efficiency that I described earlier. While these objects are emitting x-rays and once we got into those good x-ray detectors, once we managed to launch spacecraft that would detect those x-rays, we started discovering objects that and I wouldn't call them black holes, and they were not called black holes at the time, because as the name suggests, a black hole is black, right? We can't see it. We're not supposed to see it, right? Because as we said, it absorbs everything uh, that falls onto it. it, does not release anything. It does not even release light. So how do we know that we've seen a black hole? Well, here's a terminology. We do not call these black holes. Almost to this very day, we call them black hole candidates. But as we say in astrophysics, if it walks like a black hole and if it cracks <laughs> like a black hole, it's probably a black hole. So now after the 1970s, these things are pretty much established. We see those black holes, big or small, in our galaxy, even close to our neighborhood, but also they're more abundant in other galaxies. We see them in the centers of galaxies. That's where the big black holes reside, the one that I look at. And again, they come in very large and diverse group of objects, but they all follow pretty much the same basic rules that go back to the 18th century. That must have been so exciting when that was first discovered. And all of these theories that have gone on since the 1700s were proved by that. That must have been such an exciting time. I'm sure it still is, but I mean, people must have just gone crazy over that. I can't imagine. Yes, and it's not just the theories of the 1700s. It's even the theories of Albert Einstein and Carl Schwarzschild and that team of physicists in the early 20th century. Again, around the time when the world was busy in World War I, it's unbelievable that during those times, the general theory of relativity, one of the most successful theories in, in all of science, in all of history, I think, came to be. And one of the characteristics or one of the aspects of that theory was the prediction of the existence uh, or the necessity of the existence of these things called black holes. Well, apparently they seem to follow the exact same rules or theory as the classical mechanical theory of the 1700s. That is almost like a miracle that held true. And again, there were still predictions and we had to wait another 50 something years for the first candidates to be discovered by those X-ray missions. These were, again, binary stars. And later on, a decade or two later, we started seeing them everywhere, especially in the centers of galaxies, including our own. So it is a very exciting era. The 20th century in general was very exciting in this respect. And black holes continue to surprise us. In fact, some things that were not even predicted have recently been observed. We may discuss them later in some of the other parts of this interview. 
But one of the surprising aspects to me was that in the past couple of years, we've discovered black holes with masses that we never expected them to have. For example, black holes that are as massive as about 20 or 30 or 50 times the mass of the sun. We did not really expect to see such black holes, yet we see them now in other ways, and they exist and continue to surprise us. So things are still ongoing. Black holes have not said the final word yet. So just to recap a little bit of what you were saying, black holes can't be detected directly, but they're detected by their effect on other matter nearby. Is that correct? Yes, exactly. This is how we detected black holes over the past 50 years. We detected them by the light that is emitted from their surroundings. So I, without getting into the theory, of course, and without getting into the physics too much, once the light particles, or what we as physicists call the photons or the light waves, pass a certain threshold, sort of the point of no return, we call this the event horizon, then we no longer can retrieve that information, whether it's light or energy or whatever. It just gets swollen into the black hole forever. But right before that, a lot of things, a lot of interesting things happen long before those light particles travel through that point of no return. Now, this was the, the first 50 years. Now what happened in the past few years is another exciting opportunity to observe the properties of black holes or to know about black holes regardless of the light that is emitted from their surroundings. That is, we now see, quote unquote, black holes, two black holes merging into one. And during that merger process, they emit what we call gravitational waves, which is not light that we see. We see this in other means, in other ways that I can expand upon later, but they seem to tell us from the properties of these mergers what the masses of these black holes were, where they are in the sky, and what made them merge and form that bigger black hole that we now see. That's fascinating. You're the principal investigator of a study in collaboration with the University of Wyoming, stemming from a grant from the National Science Foundation to observe infrared light from more than 400 distant quasars. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So first of all, we need to say one or two things about what is a quasar. I know this sounds like another science buzzword. And the quasar, again, stems from my interest in black holes in general. So again, black holes can be big or small or very small. Quasars have to do with those big black holes, with those monsters that I mentioned earlier that lie in the centers of pretty much every healthy galaxy. So if I were to say in a soundbite or in a nutshell, what is a quasar? A quasar shines brighter than a trillion suns. So recall my description earlier of a black hole where if we just took the sun and turned it into a black hole, it would shine. And if we dumped matter towards it, it would likely shine about 10 times brighter than the sun shines today or 10 times more efficient. Well, imagine that a big black hole, like the one that shines in the centers of quasars, now is much more massive than a single sun. It could be the equivalent of a billion suns or 10 billion suns or more. And so it would shine almost like the entire energy output of a trillion suns today. These are pretty intensive objects, perhaps the most luminous, persistent objects in the universe. 
And they lie almost everywhere in the universe, in the most distant parts of the universe that we can observe today, and also nearby. But apparently they are more abundant and more frequent in the sort of what we now call cosmic noon, when the universe kind of emerged and evolved a little bit, but not all the way down to our time. So somewhere or roughly halfway uh, you know, if you try to imagine the size of the universe, they're more abundant about halfway through throughout the journey of the entire universe. So these quasars are interesting objects on their own, not just from the perspective of black hole physics, but also they shine their light throughout the universe. They basically light up the universe. They're astronomical signposts or cosmic signposts. They tell us how the universe works, evolves how the universe is constructed pretty much. Now, what I and my team are doing is we're looking at these quasars that, again, as we said, are about halfway through the edge of the universe, of the, the observable universe. And we, as the title of that NSF grant, that large project title suggests, is putting those quasars in perspective. So, so far, we relied on quasar light mostly from nearby objects, relatively nearby quasars. So we see their light uh, mostly in the visible band, and we look at visible band features that we like to track and make measurements of and basically base all of our theories about quasars based on those lines. Now, when you look at more distant quasars, and this is something that I also think I should emphasize during this interview, is given the nature of the expanding universe, everything that you see farther out also expands, also moves away from you. It doesn't mean that the object actually speeds up. It means that the universe itself is stretching. And so more distant objects appear to be stretched more. So the light, the visible light from these quasars is not observed by us is not detected by us in the visible band. In fact, it is uh, detected in the infrared band. Now, you and I, we, we can detect objects in the infrared. We don't have infrared eyes, but just as you put on those military infrared goggles, you start seeing things shining in the infrared. So this is essentially what we do. We use infrared detectors and we have to go up to high mountains like the Mauna Kea Observatory in Hawaii. Gemini Observatory is one of those telescopes that sits there beyond a lot of the atmospheric obstruction or absorption. And so we can observe the universe more clearly in the infrared. And believe it or not, we're not looking for infrared features from these quasars. Again, as I said, since the universe is expanding and stretching out, what we see in the infrared is the visible band that we were supposed to see if those quasars were nearby. So essentially, we're interested in visible band data that we cannot see with our visible band telescopes because these objects are farther away. So we need to use infrared measurements or infrared detectors. And what we do is we compare the light that we see from the visible band for those distant quasars with the visible band of the nearby quasars. And we're looking for trends and changes. Now, why is this important? Because in the visible band so far, and this is a result from about a week ago, we have known about 750,000 quasars in the universe. We've pretty much mapped almost 1 million quasars and look at their spectroscopic light, the extension of the light throughout the entire visible band, and we can detect certain features and study them in detail. That's amazing, by the way, a million quasar spectra. But in the infrared, those same visible features for distant quasars that we need infrared information for have only been done for about 500 
quasars so far. So that is why this was so important to get a, a large uniform sample of these objects where we can measure and determine two main properties for these quasars. These are the two, the mass of the black hole and the distance of the black hole from us. These are the two most important aspects. When we determine this for this sample of 400 distant quasars, we can then calibrate those properties against the large number of quasars seen nearby, the invisible band, the 750,000 quasars, and reach some unprecedented predictions or estimates of these properties for all this vast number of quasars. This is why that project was so important. It sounds like it's very leading edge. You said some of this information came from a week ago? So the number of quasars grows. When I started my graduate studies, I remember we knew of about 4,000, anywhere from 4,000 to 5,000 quasars in the entire universe. And I thought that was amazing. With time, that number increased again about a hundredfold. And now we're looking at almost a million quasars in the universe. And there's still a way to go. We're expecting with the next generation of astronomical facilities to maybe get to a point where we will be able to detect and measure almost 100 million quasars. That's coming up. A lot of data is coming. But again, the important thing is when you base some of these predictions, again, without getting too much into the theory, if you base your predictions only on certain features that you see in the visible band for the distant objects, which we as astronomers call high redshift because redshift and distance and cosmic time are pretty much synonymous. The more you look into the distant past of the universe, the more distant the object is and the higher what we call the redshift or the stretching parameter that I talked about. So when you look at objects that have a large stretching parameter, distant objects, but you look at them only through the visible band from around sea level, then you will see features that will kind of mislead you or that will have biases and issues and would require a lot of corrections to establish estimates of the black hole mass, the accretion rate, which we'll talk about later, and also the distance to the quasar itself. So by going to the visible band, the same properties that we need for the nearby objects, but for, again, for the distant objects, we need to look at them in the infrared. This has been done for a very small subset of these quasars. And this is what we're up to. Once we get that information, we've already gotten that. We're about to publish the first catalog of these features. We can now make corrections to the larger population of quasars, which again, as of last week, is about 750,000 objects. This is probably a silly question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If these objects are so far away and it takes a while for the light or whatever to get to these telescopes that are looking at them, do these far away objects help to explain more about the growth of, of the galaxy? Of I mean, does it help to explain more about our universe, these far away objects? Yes, absolutely. This is the main reason why we're doing this. So when you look at these faraway objects or distant objects, again, in the universe, when you look into the distance, you're essentially looking into the past. They have These two properties have to go hand in hand, what we can say about distant objects in, in our daily lives, right? So when you look at the, one of those distant quasars, some of the most distant ones that have recently been discovered and published, you're looking at quasars that we now see 
when the universe was roughly 700 million years old, which is a very, very young universe. Now, this quasar not only shines uh, its light through the universe from that era up to now, it can also tell you something about the properties of the universe at that time. For example, what was the gas content of, or what was the material content around that quasar in the universe at that time? How did the galaxies that harbor these quasars, how did they grow and evolve over time since then and until now? Now, again, as you hinted in your question, astronomers or scientists in general cannot afford to sit behind a telescope and look at a quasar evolve. We're not going to wait billions of years to see what's going to happen. Instead, what we do is we look at objects across cosmic time and we see quasars that we see when the universe was about 700 million years old. We look at quasars when the universe was a billion years old, two billion, and so on and so forth, and up to our own galaxy, which is when the universe is about 13.8 billion years old, our Milky Way galaxy. And now we connect the dots and we make this connection in uh, by following the physical path from what we saw in the past until what we see now in the present. And we start to realize or understand how these things evolve. We do this all the time in astrophysics. So that discovery that you and your team made about the oldest black holes in the universe, this is part of what you're describing. Is that correct? Yes. And again, this result by itself evolves over time, of course. So every year or so, we discover more and more distant quasars. Uh, I was always or almost always around that team that discovered or that studied some of the most distant quasars known. In fact, I think that as a grad student, I measured or estimated the most massive black hole in the universe, the largest mass for a black hole, about 10 billion solar masses. And what I'm doing nowadays is trying to refine those estimates to make sure they're more accurate and precise, partly using that sample and those observations from Hawaii with a Gemini telescope. But distant quasars and oldest quasars are being discovered all the time. I think now the record holder has what we call, again, a redshift or a stretching uh, parameter of 7.5, which, which sounds like a lot for astronomers who know about these things. And for the general audience, this again means that the universe was 700 million years at that time. What I uh, am usually involved with is with the X-ray observations of these black holes. So once they're discovered, they're usually not discovered with X-rays, they're discovered in other means, usually in the infrared. Then we come and follow them up with X-rays and learn a lot from them by analyzing the X-ray light uh, we collect from them. So you're talking about quasars and black holes. So just to be clear, the quasars are formed when they're funneled into a supermassive black hole. Is that correct? Is that why when you are seeing a quasar, are you seeing a black hole? Yes, exactly. So when I see a quasar, you know it when you see it. If you see a quasar, if you see something that has uh, that is very bright and very blue and that is located at a very large distance from you, there's pretty much no other explanation but a quasar for that object that you see. And once you see a quasar, again, you know, we already know after decades of research that we're not looking at what we call a stellar phenomena, a sun-like phenomena. This is not the same powerhouse that powers the sun. This is a vastly different system or mechanism, which again, can only be a black hole. In other words, there's no other interpretation but a supermassive black hole that has matter following into it. Or in other words, the black hole is accreting material onto it. And that's what powers the quasar that we see even at the edge of the observable universe. 
So when I mentioned in the introduction that one of your research interests involves accretion, that's what you're talking about then. Is that right? <laughs> Correct. So, so accretion is essentially the science or, or the physics of matter falling towards a black hole. It doesn't have to be a black hole in, in accretion in general, but accretion towards a black hole is a, is a whole new subject or topic in physics in general, uh, but it, it is obviously extremely relevant for what I do, quasar science or active galactic nucleus science. So we're looking at the mechanisms that funnel the material surrounding the black hole towards the black hole. For example, when we look at our own galaxy, the Milky Way, we know that there is, again, a monster in its center. There's a supermassive black hole that weighs roughly 4 million times as much as the sun does. So we're looking at a 4 million solar mass black hole in the center of our galaxy. It's not one of the most massive we've seen. We've, again, we've seen even more than a billion solar masses. But this supermassive black hole in the center of our own Milky Way is what we call, it is being starved. It is not being fed. Material doesn't seem to flow onto it, at least not in the rate that we would expect from a quasar. Now, you may ask the question, what makes a supermassive black hole a quasar? Are all supermassive black holes in the universe quasars? Well, the answer is no, because we look at their Milky Way and we know that our Milky Way is not a quasar. If our Milky Way was a quasar, then the center of the Milky Way, which is, by the way, observable tonight towards the constellation of Sagittarius, would shine brighter than the full moon. And it doesn't. So we know that our galaxy is not a quasar. We know that the supermassive black hole in our own galaxy is being starved. And only about one in a thousand supermassive black holes currently observed in the universe is being well-fed to shine like a quasar. That is, the accretion process seems to be working. What is this accretion process? What does it involve? What does it take? Well, there are many parameters to this problem. And one of them is what we call the meal schedule. How is the feeding uh, going to happen? You know, when you go to an alligator farm, you see the feeding of the alligators once every three to four hours and, and you know exactly what's going on and when they're going to be fed, when they should be hungry again, and so on. Well, with supermassive black holes, we don't know that. Uh, this duty cycle or that feeding cycle is one big unknown parameter that we're still trying to study, but it has to do also with how much gas is available, how much matter there is for the supermassive black hole to accrete, in what rate would it accrete it, what is the mass of the black hole itself, is it spinning or not spinning? There are a lot of aspects associated with that problem of what is the uh, accretion mechanism. That's why we're studying this. Well, I have to say, being a fan of science fiction, having a hungry black hole in the center of our universe sounds a little scary. What happens when a black hole isn't fed? Is it dying? Great question. So first off, like this uh, alligator farm analogy that I made earlier, you don't really want to be next to a black hole that is right now going to be fed, right? Because the intense radiation emanating from the surroundings of the black hole might be dangerous to you. So we're, we're at sort of at a safe distance from the center of the Milky Way, from the supermassive black hole in the center of the Milky Way. It's about, give or take, 30,000 light years away. So even when it, if it's going to shine as bright as one of the brightest quasars out there, again, it's not going to be much, much brighter than the full moon, and it's likely not going to harm us. But a hungry black hole, such as the ones that we see in passive galaxies, such as the Milky Way and Andromeda and other galaxies around us, is pretty much the norm. But we now know that in order for the black hole to have grown to its current mass, it should have been fed. It was fed in the past. When was it fed, at what rate, and at what frequency, we don't know. This is what we're trying to study. Wow, that's very exciting stuff. 
What are some of the most exciting things going on right now with space exploration and astrophysics? Oh, there's always exciting things going on, always. This is why I'm, I'm in this business, and it's extremely fascinating. I'll just mention one or two things. Well, we've now entered over the past five years, formally entered into a new era in astrophysics, which we now call multi-messenger astrophysics. I already alluded to the existence or the detection of gravitational waves starting in 2015, the direct detection of these waves. Until then, until 2015, most of the astrophysical or astronomical discoveries were based on one particular messenger, which is the light particle, the photon or the light wave, whether it's the visible light that you and I see or the radio waves that we detect with our radio devices or the x-rays that we receive when we go to a dentist appointment, for example. So this light has been the dominant messenger for more than a century now, if not millennia. We also relied on information coming in from cosmic rays over the past century or so, and even an elusive particle, a tiny little particle called a neutrino that is very hard to catch, but once you catch it, it also can provide some information about what's going on in those astrophysical objects. Gravitational waves and their detection became feasible over the past five years are the next new frontier where we're learning about astrophysical phenomena from a totally different perspective. The warping of space-time and the release of not electromagnetic waves, but gravitational waves. Again, totally different, totally different force, a totally different field, but a lot to learn. I think we now live in an exciting, exciting era that is only just going to get better and better. And there are, of course, other exciting developments such as observing very close to a black hole event horizon, that threshold, that point of no return. We've now combined radio observatories all around the world into one giant radio dish, if you want. And we can now observe these black hole surroundings with really high spatial resolution. That is, we could really see down, you know, an ant walking from 100 miles away or so. And by doing so, we really can see now for the first time with our own eyes what is going on, for example, around that surface of the black hole, that event horizon that we've only been able to think about until now. So we started this conversation about black holes and how we thought that we found them and how, how we now know that they actually exist. I think that observation of exactly what's going on around a supermassive black hole is really leaves no doubt to anyone about uh, the existence of these objects. Well, to piggyback on that last question, is there something you've learned recently that really excited you or surprised you? Yes. And again, I'm, I'm always surprised by new discoveries that are made, maybe not daily, but at least on, uh, on an annual basis. I just mentioned one minor anecdote here. I remember that as a graduate student, when I was working on one of my first projects, I computed some uh, cosmic distances using, well, at the time it was the common formula, which was now we know based on a very old formula. And then one of my colleagues, when he saw that, a colleague from Berkeley uh, told me, hey, wait a minute, why are you using that old formula? Haven't you heard the recent news? The universe is expanding in acceleration. So well, no, I haven't. That was 1998. And I had to revise all my measurements and estimates at the time, given the surprising new result that uh, the universe not only is not slowing down its expansion, it's even accelerating its expansion. So there are always these new amazing discoveries. Again, I mentioned earlier that something that still boggles my mind is the discovery through gravitational waves of the existence of really big, bigger, small black holes. Okay, so black holes that should have been not, no more than about 20 solar masses 
are now observed at 50 solar masses and beyond. This is something that I couldn't expect, and, and I find it surprising and, and fascinating. Okay, I have to ask you this question. What about the possibility of life on other planets? What's your opinion on that one? Great question. So, <laughs> um, uh, and, and the answer, is surprisingly, is very simple. So the short answer is yes, definitely. There must be life on other planets, around other stars, in other galaxies. There must be. Because if there aren't, if we're the only life forms in the universe, then we have a problem. We have a problem with what scientists have called for many centuries the Copernican principle. And we've made that mistake, we as, as uh, society or, or as humans, many, many times throughout the history of science. So now we adopt notion that we are not special in any way in the universe. Our position is not special. Our evolutionary phase is not special. What's going on here in, on Earth in the solar system is not very special. So if that is the case, if we're not special and other points in the universe are not special, then somewhere in another corner of the universe, you should definitely expect something that is uh, just as not special as us. In other words, there should be some life forms some sort of life going on one way or the other. It doesn't mean, of course, that some point in the universe there are humans that look like us or two people interviewing like you and me, speaking the same language, but it could be something that we can't even imagine that would be related to life, to life forms that would follow simple biological sequences. And uh, the non-existence of these life forms would pose a great problem to our scientific understanding. If I may add uh, just the... Uh, and, and I know this is always needed in this context. However, having said that, we know there's a problem. And that problem is known as the speed of light. Because the speed of light is limited, finite, we know what it is. It's only 300,000 kilometers per second. Then we know that even if we are guessing or assuming that there is some life form uh, a few light years away from us or hundreds of light years away from us, communication with that other life form or travel to that other uh, life form, in other words, any uh, attempt to contact that other life form will be virtually impossible. And that is the problem. So while we know, we think we know that these life forms exist, contacting them or for them to contact us is virtually impossible. Hmm. That is such an interesting answer. You know, I was doing research on this discussion with you, and I read about the Alan Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. And of course, I'm sure we're, most of us are familiar with scientists like Neil deGrasse Tyson and Stephen Hawking and Michio Keiku, who is a theoretical physicist. And they are communicating science and making it accessible to the everyday person. Do you think it's important for scientists to be able to communicate their findings to the general public? Absolutely. I think that scientists have a duty to communicate their findings to the general public, A, because uh, they're funded by the public, right? So science would not be able to operate without taxpayers' money throughout the world. So we owe something to the public. This is sort of the return on the investment or part of the return on the investment. But at the same time, we should also keep in mind that these scientific discoveries or surprises don't necessarily happen in the rate that we would have expected them to be, let's say, on a daily basis. These things don't happen daily, weekly, or monthly. Usually in, in astrophysics, for example, we're looking at major breakthroughs about once a decade. Again, just a, a couple of examples from the past couple of decades. 
the discovery of the accelerating universe in the late 90s, then the discovery of the Higgs boson, higher energy physics, astrophysics in 2012, and now the detection of gravitational waves. So about every decade or so, we have something fascinating to tell the public. And I think you need good speakers, like some of the names that you've mentioned and others. And I think that every scientist, myself included, should make every effort to communicate the findings, to reach out to the public in interviews, in talks, in publications, such as the one we're doing right now. I try to communicate a lot of this to my students. I deliberately ask to teach among my other courses. I like to teach the astronomy for non-majors, for freshmen who have no direct relationship with the physical sciences, physics or astronomy, yet I present that material to them using a lot of analogies, with very little math, with a lot of explanations, including other disciplines. And I do my best to communicate that to them so that they will grow up and become fans of astronomy. Uh, they're not going to be astronomers for sure, but they will likely be, I'm hoping some of them would be astronomy fans when they grow up. Well, we're appreciative of your efforts in all of that communication. We're just thrilled to have you here today. I mentioned Michio Keku, and he has a podcast called Sci-Fi Science and has written a book about the physics of the impossible where he mentions possibilities of time travel and parallel universes and that kind of thing. So I'm thinking about what you mentioned about our inability to communicate with other life forms. So if what he suggests is possible at all, maybe in many, many years to come, we'll discover some way to be able to communicate more quickly. Right. So first of all, it's always very good to keep the thinking going. Science relies on thinking, on provocative thinking and thinking uh, outside of the box always. And in science, you never say never. That is for sure. Science continuously involves and what was true and applicable today may not be so true and applicable in the future. That is always the case. And so while communicating with other life forms, given the limited uh, speed of light is almost completely impossible, now may become somehow possible in the future. This cannot be ruled out, although a lot of work would have to be done in that direction to find perhaps new physics, new explanations to our universe. We've seen over the past few centuries how the Newtonian world, the classical mechanical world evolved into the general relativity world of Albert Einstein. This had held uh, pretty tight for the past century or so. Maybe we will have a better explanation in the next century. I, I, I don't know. So far, there have been attempts to try and modify Einstein's theories. Uh, they're looking for, physicists are looking for alternative theories. It's always good to do that. It's always helpful. That's what drives science. And yes, maybe one day we would be able to communicate with those other life forms if we manage to somehow overcome this problem of the speed of light that I that I. Maybe one of your students. <laughs> Maybe one of my students or their grandkids, yes. There you go. And along those lines, what advice would you share to a student of physics or mathematics interested in a future career as an astrophysicist? Yeah. So if you're a student, and I have quite a few already, you need to be very patient. You need to work diligently in your physics classes. Uh, math is, is also a, a very strong component to this. So, so be good in your, you know, do well in your math classes and your physics class. And I would add also statistics. You need to know a lot of statistics when you come into this, when you come to astronomy. Be patient. 
Be meticulous about what you do. Don't always take things for granted. Don't be you know, sort of uh, limited in, in your scope. Try to be adventurous and look around and be creative. That's also very important for a student. And what advice do you have for people who would like to know more about space and the stars and the physics that affects the universe around us? I know the comet Neowise is around now, and people have been very excited about that. What kind of advice would you give people to learn more about that kind of thing? Yeah, I will personally go out and observe Comet Neowise tomorrow night, if weather permits. It's supposed to be at its highest elevation above the horizon tomorrow. When I grew up, I, I was also thirsty for information about space and science and astronomy, and my resources were quite limited. I, for example, didn't have the internet at the time. I didn't have any access to the internet, to, to Google and to web pages. I think people today live in a very fortunate era where at, at their fingertips, whether it's their handheld devices or their computers, even if they just go to a library, they can immediately log in and they open the door to the entire universe. There are links and resources to almost anything on any subject, there is a deluge of information about space and astronomy and discoveries. I can't even start to name all these different sources and websites uh, that are out there. We also have nowadays this idea or movement in the astrophysical sciences, which is called citizen science. And I'm not sure if, if such an avenue exists for other sciences. In the citizen science, it could be a completely non-expert, non-astronomer, non-physicist, who would help the astronomers, help the professionals with analyzing data or just look at data, astronomical data, and make discoveries. And there is a very nice example of a teacher from the Netherlands, an elementary school teacher who got into this citizen science project and discovered something very exciting related to quasars and to quasar physics. So really, people today can go to the NASA websites and see where Comet Neowise is tonight. We have Google Sky. We have all these websites showing you where satellites are uh, at each and every point in time for each and every point location on Earth. So really, people today are flooded and are surrounded by information. The problem is time. Where do we find the time to look at all that? And where do we go to first? But that is a good problem to have. It is. But I have one last question for you. You are so darn smart. What does someone like you do for a hobby you love to challenge yourself, obviously. I mean, your field is extremely challenging and you solve problems. Do you do that kind of thing as a hobby as well? Well, uh, thanks for the question. <laughs> Very interesting question. So in this business, you don't really have a lot of free time. And if you do, yes, you devote it to those hobbies that you like. I, in fact, I started, uh, my, my original hobby was, uh, was an astronomer. You know, in astronomy, you could be an amateur astronomer as a hobby. And, and I have lots of friends who are still amateur astronomers doing other things for their careers. And so once I stepped into maybe grad school that stopped being a hobby, it became my profession or my career, then I had to look for other hobbies, of course. And I would say today my, my main hobbies are related to outdoors, to sports. I do a lot of swimming, running, uh, weightlifting, as much as I can even during the pandemic, hiking, traveling, uh, and cooking. These are, these are some, some of my hobbies. Sounds great. I can't thank you enough for a fascinating, fascinating interview. And I just appreciate you spending the time to talk to us about these things that you're doing. I know you have a very, very busy schedule right now. So I appreciate you speaking with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Susan. This has been Susan Supak at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, speaking with Dr. Schimmer. 
Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ali at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.